0: your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Daniel, the third chapter. We'll be there in just just a moment. Let me just uh, take a moment to say to all of those folks who are still at home, we are so glad that you're tuned in with us this morning. We miss you so very much. We wish you could be here with us, but we know exactly why you are where you are. So will you just take a moment and just hear our love and our appreciation for you. We are praying for you. You're a vital part of our church family. And then there are many others that have made First Baptist Church their home. Uh, You have zeroed in on us week after week after week uh, from your homes. Uh, Some of you located here in town, some all around the world. And we want to thank you and welcome you to be a part of our family as well. So as you, as you take your Bibles there at home, as you open it on your lap, I want you to sense that you're right here with us, and we can be together, together, even when we're separated. The third chapter of Daniel, you may remember, comes at a time that after the prophets have told Israel over and over and over again that you've been chasing out after these foreign idols, and the time has come now that you're going to be overrun by uh, another country, and indeed they were. Uh, Babylon had come in and not only had overrun and and ravaged and uh, destroyed Jerusalem, they had taken all of the leadership, all of the the doctors and scientists, all of the educators, all of the ruling class, uh, all of the people in government, taken all of them away, and they were were exiled in Babylon. And among those who were there were some very special young adults when they came there. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they distinguished themselves by not only being good citizens of that country that they were made to, to, to live in, but they were also good citizens of the kingdom of God. And they lived their faith without wavering in the midst of that. We don't know where Daniel is here in the third chapter. He is not on the scene. He could have been away on king's business. We really don't know where he was. But he was not here. But his three compatriots, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were there. Now, we're going to pick that story up, but we're going to focus on those three verses that we read earlier today. That's really going to be the crux of our sermon. Satan is the prince of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who is in control of the the, the spiritual uh, being, of the world's way of looking at things the worldview that that, that He offers. And I want you to understand, when you defy Him, all hell breaks loose. And we're about to see that happen in God's holy word. He will bind us with temptation, with doubt, and all kinds of shackles. And the persecution increases the more you and I are determined to be obedient to the Lord God in the midst of the pressures that He exerts. And when that happens, his threats are real. The flames are real. But here's what I want you to know. The flames we're going to read about today that could have destroyed these three young Hebrew Hebrew men are nothing compared to hell's fire, which the devil is going to find as his eternal resting place and all of his minions that follow after him. I am reminded yet again of that grand old hymn we often sing, God leads us alone. And it says, some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night seasons and all the day long. This is life when you're going to stand for what counts. This is life when you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, even when the world wants to press you and conform you into their mold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was literally the king of the known world. He was king of the world, all right? He was the king of the world, and he had an ego to match. And there were some folks there in his kingdom that did not like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They did not like the fact that they were committed to the Lord God, Yahweh God, and they, they didn't do, the, do, do life the way they did in Uh, in Babylon. They didn't eat like the Babylonians. They didn't talk like the Babylonians. And yet they were accepted and had even become rulers within the kingdom. So there was a group of them that went to, these guys that went to King Nebuchadnezzar and they stroked his ego, they stroked his ego and said, you know, you are a God and you should be worshipped as a God. And he bought into that and so he had an idol created for himself now this idol was ninety feet tall and made of gold now I just want you to understand 90 foot is taller than the building you're in here we're talking about a huge idol and it's made of gold and there on the back side of it or inside of it or off to one side was a place for a furnace where they would offer sacrifices. They would throw sacrifices in to a sacrifice to the God who was Nebuchadnezzar. So it, he, it stroked his ego. He had the, the idol built. And then he set aside a time for dedicating it. And he had all of the instruments, more of them than I know how to pronounce. I'm glad we got Ed here to take care of all that. And if he don't know it, Ben backs him up. We're glad to have all of those kind of things. Well, when the orchestra, I'm just going to call them the orchestra. I don't know what a satrap is. Anyway, when the orchestra began to play, the command was for everybody to fall down on their knees and then bow their heads towards the great idol. Now, these three men, are these men that put Nebuchadnezzar up to this, they were watching. They were watching to see what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would do. Would they buckle under the pressure? Would they bend their knee to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar? And so when the orchestra struck it up and they began to play, their eyes were all on these three young men. And what they found was they remained standing. The only one out of the hundreds or thousands who were there, we don't have how many were there, but they were from all over the kingdom. Everybody did what they were supposed to, down on their knees, face to the ground, before the idol, except these three young men. And so right away, bam! These guys who planned this whole thing, they ran to Nebi. I call him Nebi because I get tired of saying Nebuchadnezzar. They ran to Nebi, and they said, Oh, king, live forever, Struck in that ego, stroke in that ego. These three guys won't bow down. And so, the king had them called in. They were important people. They had positions of leadership within the kingdom. And he called them in, and that's where we pick up in our our reading, in verse um, 14. okay, Daniel 3, 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now... This is where he's going to give them a second chance. Now, if you're ready at the time to hear the sound of the orchestra, okay, to fall down and worship the image which I've set up, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning furnace. And listen to this. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king of Nebuchadnezzar, "We have no need to answer you on this matter. In other words, what they were saying, we don't have to pray about this. We don't have to have a committee meeting. All right, their mind had already been made up. If that is the case, our God. You ask, who our God? Our God." whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You know the results of that. Nebi got so mad, he got hotter than the furnace. And he ordered the furnace to be stoked up even hotter, seven times hotter, to have these boys bound together. And they they were bound by ropes, and and they were cast into that furnace. And the flames were so hot that it literally burned those soldiers or whoever that cast them in and killed them. There, done. Nebuchadnezzar said, that'll teach you. You, you, don't, you don't follow my order. You don't bow under the pressure. You, you, you don't bend your convictions to make mine. This is what happens to you. You end up being consumed by my wrath. And then he, then he got down there and he got to looking inside a little bit. And he asked the sergeant in arms, How many boys did we throw in there? Wasn't there Three. He said, but I, I see four men walking around in the flame. And the fourth one appears to be as the Son of God. And then he shouted out, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come on out of there. The scripture tells us as they came out, the fourth man didn't come with them, but as they came out, the ropes were burned off their hands, but not a hair of their head was singed, and there was not even the smell of smoke on their clothes. So Nebuchadnezzar said, We have never seen anything like this before. And he made a decree that if anybody in all of his kingdom in the known world ever spoke anything negatively against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their life was over, and everything they had was destroyed. Because, he said, no God can deliver like this God. Pray with me. Father, I thank You for Your Holy Word. I thank You that it is absolutely inspired, without any error, and it is given for our inspiration and instruction. May the living Word of God speak to our hearts this morning. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. I hope you're aware of the fact that we are under pressure in the world in which we live to conform. This is an election year, and I don't want to get political on you, This, but this is an election year. And like never before, you see the various ideologies played out in front of us. And we see and sense the pressure to come into conformity. Our children are not uh, in school all the time, but they'll tell you there is a constant abiding pressure For them to conform in order to be accepted, to act a certain way, to talk a certain way, to do certain things. Where you work, or where you used to work if you're retired, you know the pressure. And you had to put up with some garbage from time to time that you really didn't want to, but because you had to keep that job. You had to be able to maintain. And so we find ourselves in a constant battle. We want to be faithful and serve the living God. We want to be faithful to Him. And we want our lives to reflect that commitment to Him. And yet there is the pressure of this world around us to bow to the idols of this world. Now, an idol doesn't have to necessarily be something that sits on top of your desk, whether an idol can fit in the palm of your hand or whether it's 90 feet tall, it's still an idol and it's still an abomination to God. God is still the jealous God He was when He appeared to Moses and He said, You shall have no other gods before Me and there will be no idol, no graven image in your life This he detests. This he absolutely detests. Now it's interesting that these three men find themselves here in Babylon standing before this huge golden idol because Israel had spent way too many years running after all of the idols right there in Israel and of all of the... the, Uh, countries round about and rather than having a single wholehearted devotion to the Lord God in the words of the scriptures they constantly went whoring after other gods and because of that God allowed destruction to come upon that nation and for all of their leadership to be dragged away into Babylon that's why they were there at least these young men learned a lesson from history. They learned a lesson. When you turn your back on God, when you cause Him to be jealous because you want to bow down to the world's idols and at the same time claim Him as your Lord and Master, they learned that that was a recipe for disaster. And disaster had fallen upon them. These young men were separated from their families. They were separated from their nation. They were separated from the life as they understood it. And and they were then pressed to conform. Now they didn't mind dressing like the other Babylonians. They didn't mind learning the language. They didn't mind learning government. And they even had significant positions within the government. But what they would not do is they would not conform to the pressure, the religious pressure, the spiritual pressure that was being put upon them. And they, they, they managed to go under the radar for a while. But when this statue was created and this, the, it was commemorated and, and said that particular day, there was no place to be. There was no place to hide. It was D-Day. It was time to take your stand. Three thoughts i want to leave with you. I'm going to go over them one at a time. But three thoughts I want to leave with you. When you serve a big God, you don't bow to the little idols of this world. When you serve a big God, you don't bend your convictions under the pressure of those who do worship the gods of this age. And third, when you serve a big God, you don't burn in the world's furnaces. God delivers us from the fire or through the fire. This is the story of these young men. Now, let me make something real clear. When I say that God delivers, and God delivers us from or God delivers us through the fiery trials we face, Let me tell you, that doesn't always mean we come out without the smell of smoke on us. That doesn't always mean we come out alive. If you have never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I challenge you to read that great book. It traces from the earliest days of Christianity. When the pressure to conform religiously was so incredibly great, then. How brave men and women, boys and girls, stood for their faith and gave their lives for what they believed in. Did God not deliver them? Oh, yes. He didn't deliver them from that persecution, He delivered them through that persecution. Because He was the other man in their midst. He was the one who went through that persecution with them and then He took them to His eternal home and their eternal reward and He crowned them with a martyr's crown as they came into the pearly gates. I am not saying this morning that God is going to get you out of every fiery trial that you go through. He may not save you from it, but listen to me. What I am promising you is He will save you through it He will go through it with you. And if that means bringing you out on the other side alive in this life, or bringing you out on the other side clothed in eternal glory, He will bring you through. And that is the confidence that these three young men had. An idol is anything or anyone who takes God's rightful place in your life. An idol is anything or anyone who takes God's rightful place in your life. It can be an idea. It can be a goal. It can be a desire of your heart. It can be acceptance. It can be popularity. It can be success. It can be money or possessions. It can be power. It can be self-sufficiency. In our immediate climate, it has to do a lot with the political agendas that are being forced upon so many of us now. I encourage you to know the party platforms that are out there. I encourage you to know the voting records of those that are out there. Do they stand for moral truth? Do they stand or biblical truths, and when you go to vote, vote your convictions. Vote your biblical convictions. That is what is so imperative. In this world, here's what you need to know. The idols of this world are competing for your allegiance. And they are vicious. They demand that you follow them and that you bow down. We see that demand through our school systems, with tolerance and acceptance and sensitivity training. We see those demands in terms of children who are sacrificed on the altar of convenience. And you and I are called on either to accept this as the norm and what is right for America, or to shut up and let the rest of the world do what's right. And the pressure is on. The pressure is on. For the Christian, there is no choice. In the earliest days of the church, what was required was something called Caesar worship. Again, Caesar saw himself as a God, and, and worthy and demanded worship. So annually when you would go to pay your taxes, you had to do that in person, you couldn't put it in the mail, when you went to pay your taxes you would come before the, this tax collector and the Roman soldiers, the guards that were there, and you come identify yourself and pay your taxes. But while you were right there, there was a little flame burning and a little bowl of incense. And you were to take a little pinch of the incense throw it into the flame, a little cloud of smoke went up, and then you were to say, Caesar is Lord. And then you were fine. Walk away. You were good till next year. But for the Christian, that went diametrically opposed to their heart. There is one Lord and only one Lord, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they would come and they would pay their taxes to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But they would refuse to take the incense and throw it into the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. They refused. It started slowly at first, but then it got more and more and more demanding to where if that happened you were carted off to jail or there was in some places in the Roman Empire a place that you were executed on the spot. It was a time to stand up. But here's what these three young men knew. And here's what the early Christian martyrs knew. When you serve a big God, you don't bow to this world's idols. He gives you the power to stand against that Now, if you can't do that, I suggest your God is too small. If you find it easier to worship at the altar of convenience, I just don't want to make any waves. I I, I need this job. Or I want to be accepted. Or I want to be popular. If, If you bow down to those idols, my friends, you serve small God. Because your God obviously can't give you the backbone to stand for what is right. But if you serve a big God, if you serve the God of the Bible, then you find a God who inhabits you. A God who inspires you. A God who enables you. A God who empowers you. To stand for truth. Thought two. When you serve a big God, you don't bend to the pressure of those who do worship the world's idols. Those who worship this world's system and the God of this age are vehement that you must follow. They will get violent in their pressure for you to conform. And if they can't get you to conform, they will intimidate you into silence. Let me tell you one place that you can be absolutely silent and yet scream your faith, and that's when you step into a voting booth. That's between you and God at that point. And I say again, I don't want to get political on you, I don't want to... Endorse anybody. I'm not doing all that. This is the American way, and it's the right way. But the Christian citizen doesn't bend to the pressures of this world. He or she votes their conscience when they vote. That's the essence. When you serve a big God, you will not bend to the pressure this world puts on you. Again, I'm not making a political statement. Please don't misunderstand me. But in watching the vice presidential debate the other night, I could not help but have a surge of affinity with our vice president when he said, I stand unapologetically for pro-life. He knew that he was going to offend millions of people. He knew he was going to lose some potential voters. But he would not bend on a moral decision. That's just one example of a gazillion of godly men and women who serve us from the national level down to the local level. Who, what they do, and the way they do their job, and the way they vote, it is with their convictions in mind. Keep them in office, whoever they are, from here in town to the White House. And again, I'm saying vote your convictions, not any particular person. But here's the point Peter told us, Peter told us, don't be surprised when this world puts the pressure on you. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing had happened to you. Nothing strange about this. Jesus made it abundantly clear. He said, If they do this to me, what are they going to do to you? And the Bible says, In this world we will have persecution.'" Because when we refuse to bow to the world's idols, when we refuse to bend our convictions to the pressure of those who do, we can expect a fiery trial. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. But it's really interesting. God doesn't plan that fiery trial to destroy you. It doesn't have the power to destroy you. I love that old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I love that. And there's, there's a line in it that says, And when through the fire thy pathway shall lie, My grace all sufficient will be thy supply. The flames will not hurt you, I only design thy dross to consume and your gold to refine. The writer of that hymn knew what it was like to refuse to bend before the pressure of those who worship the idols of this age. If your concept of God is too small to empower you to stand against the pressure of the model idol worshipers around you, then you are just going to go along with the flow. You are going to bow with them. You're going to bend your convictions to fit their needs. But if you serve a big God, If you serve a powerful God, if you serve the Almighty God, then you don't bend to the world's pressure. And finally, when you serve a big God, you don't burn in the world's furnaces. Folks, as I said earlier, that doesn't mean you and I won't give up our lives from time to time by things of what we'll do. It isn't a protection that God is going to somehow, like the prosperity gospel tells you, that everything is going to be rosy and great and fun and, and you're going to have all kinds of money and everybody's going to like you and all of this kind of stuff. That's not biblical. I don't, I don't know why gullible believers swallow that hook, line, and sinker, but, but they, they do. Today, as in the past, there are many who have paid for their faith, with their lives. And today I want us to honor the men and women, even in the course of the sermon that I preached this morning, have already either been imprisoned or given their lives. Bless God we live in a nation now to where we don't put our life on the line by worshiping or sharing our faith at least not yet but make no bones about it around this globe that you and I call home our brothers and sisters live in constant daily fear and they long for us to pray for them not that their lives would be saved but they would give their lives for a cause that's something these three young men knew that we need to embrace. They didn't mind giving their lives if they knew they could give their lives and make it count. And that's why they said what they did to the king. Our God can deliver us. Our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, here's what you need to know, king. We will not bend. We will not bow, even if we burn. And I don't think they were real sure that was going to happen. The furnaces of this world are real, and they heat up to punish anyone who will not conform. I do not minimize that. But this is a call to courage and a call to embrace a big enough God to walk with you through that. I remember our first Christian martyr as recorded in the 7th chapter of Acts 6 and 7. His name was Stephen. He was a deacon. He wasn't a pastor, wasn't a missionary. He was a deacon. He was a religious leader in the community. And when he continually shared his faith, Read about it in Acts 6 and 7. He was arrested. He was brought before a trial before the Sanhedrin, just like Jesus was. He shared the holy history of Israel with them. And he shared how it culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he shared that, and that Jesus had been ascended and it was the right hand of God the Father, the world went nuts. They gnashed their teeth. They rushed upon Him to take Him out and stone Him. He said an amazing thing. Looking into heaven, He said, "I, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of God the Father. And you and I know that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. He ascended as co-regent, as co-royalty, as co-ruler, right beside the Father. But here's what you have to understand. It's a world that we don't live in today. But royalty sits. Royalty judges from the judgment seat. All of the underlings stand. Everyone else in the court stands. But the ruling judge is seated. That's why it's referred to as a seated judge. Because he rules from the judgment seat. Jesus Christ's position is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But when he sees one of his beloved staring the fire in the face, willing to give all for what he believed, And the fire is furnished, although as hot as it can get. And the pressure is on. And yet, his beloved is standing firm. Christ stands in honor of those who will stand with him. That is how he walks through the fiery furnace with us, even today. He stood with Philip, with Stephen. And then he went and gathered him and brought him home and crowned him the first Christian martyr. Some are saved from the fire. Some are saved through the fire. But all are delivered. The very fire that Satan wants to kindle To destroy you is nothing compared to the fire that He will spend eternity in when judgment comes upon Him. And That's why you don't fear the flames. You trust the Almighty instead. It is true, God can keep you from the fire and often He does. But if you are in the fire for His sake, because you've refused to bow to the world's idols and refused to bend to their pressure, then you are not ever going to be alone in that flame. Our high priest comes to go through that fire with you. If it's a fire of your loneliness at home because you have been almost incarcerated for so long there and you can't get out, if it's the loneliness of your cancer, if it's the loneliness of the relationship that's broken, whatever it happens to be, Jesus says you will not go through that alone. I love you too much. So what is the call for us today? It's to to do away with the small concept of God. A small concept of God that's just located to a certain time and a place that is about the where and the how and not the who and the why. We learned in our first sermon. To not, not bow down to that small God who will allow insult and injury to His holy name. That small God that you serve that makes you afraid of the giants in your life. Rather, it's a call to get a glimpse of the Almighty God, who He is in all His glory and grandeur and power and grace. And understand, when you serve that kind of God, you don't bow to the idols of this world. You don't bend to the pressure they put upon you. And you don't burn in their furnaces, because God goes swiftly through it. If you don't know that God, one of two things is true. You've been worshiping too small a God. And I challenge you this morning to learn the Almighty God. To understand who it is that you genuinely serve. The other possibility is you've not come to know the Lord God at all. And that happens in the world we live in. Some of you here today, some of you watching at home. You've known an awful lot about God, but you've never come to know Him as your personal Lord and Savior. Let me tell you how that happened. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one, from before time ever began, knew that when they created mankind, that man was going to follow his natural, willful bent to sin. And would cause a great chasm to happen between holy God and sinful man. And so it was decided before the foundation of the earth, before time even began, that God the Son would become a human being. He would be the creator that becomes a part of his creation. And God came in the form of a baby, Jesus. He lived an absolutely sinless, perfect life. And in the fullness of time, when time was absolutely right, he gave his life on a cross, taking all of my sins, all of your sins, all of your sins upon himself. He died in my place in yours. And three days later, He rose from the grave to give us His eternal life. How do I receive that, Pastor? It's not that hard. You simply say to God, God, I realize I'm a sinner. I'm lost and in need of a Savior. I cannot save myself but I dare to believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that I could have eternal life. Come into my heart. I want to surrender my life to you. I dare to believe you're a big enough God to save my soul. Come into my heart. Cleanse me. Forgive me. And be the boss, the king, the ruler of my life. I invite you to pray that prayer with me now. bow your heads Father God right here in this building those watching from home it's time we do business with you and so right now we pray in Jesus name God I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior with all that is within me I want to turn away from doing life my way and I want to do life your way I dare to believe that when you died it was to take my sins on yourself and when you rose again it was so that I could have your life flowing through me. Lord Jesus, will you come into my heart? Will you cleanse me and forgive me? May you be the boss, the king, the ruler of my life. I give my life to you. I surrender my life to you. Father, I know on the authority of your word that you've never refused a prayer like that and you never will. So may those who have prayed that prayer right here in this building, in the next few moments as Ed leads us to sing, will you give them the courage to come and sit on this front row and allow Derek or I to share with them and and just lead them to faith in Christ. May others want to join our fellowship same way. Some may want to come to the altar and just pray and say, Lord, I need you to increase my faith, increase my boldness, increase my determination. I want to stand strong like those three Hebrew men. Father, this is your time to do work with us, and our time to, to obediently respond to you. Let it be so. In Christ's name, amen.